We're uh, we're in a new series called At the Movies. It's kind of different, um, not something we normally do, but we are going to text, looking to understand God's word, and and using some modern secular movies to kind of illustrate what we're seeing in Scripture on different points. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. It's just a chapter of the Bible that I can't seem to get out of lately, um, and it's so good. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. If you're there, say amen. All right. Verse 13, and someone in the crowd said to him, talking about Jesus... Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That sounds like my children. (laughs) Tell him to share with me. It's my turn. He won't let me. She won't let me. She's not paying attention, etc., etc. We don't ever sound like that as adults, do we? Never. Never in a million years. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge and arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul? You have, made, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. When God calls you a fool, that's serious business. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Holy Spirit, be our teacher today as we talk about the curse of greed. The curse of greed. Be our teacher. Open our hearts and minds. Change us. We don't want to be the same. We don't want to be conformed to the pattern of this world. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So do that, I pray, in your name. Amen. Let me give a little disclaimer because I know that here at Res, we have talked quite a bit about money and giving lately. We're in the middle of a building campaign. Uh, We're looking to expand our facilities here at Resurrection Church. And so when you take on such initiatives, talking about money and giving is necessary, okay, on occasion. But let me give a little disclaimer because this sermon, hear me, is not about giving. It's not about giving. I don't think that's Jesus' main point. And so it's not my focus this morning directly. Giving is not the point. This is not a sales pitch for Discover Life or for Giving to Resurrection Church. In fact, I'm not going to mention Discover Life or Giving to Resurrection Church from this point forward. Zero. Zilch. Okay? Everybody feel okay now? All right. I'm not going to talk about that. All right? That's not Jesus' main point. But I am going to acknowledge that what Jesus' main point is has huge, massive, though somewhat indirect, implications for how we think about giving and generosity. Okay? So just keep that in your mind, but that's not 
Jesus' main point, and therefore it's not mine either. My motivation, my point this week is what I think Jesus' is. And it's very similar to last week. We talked about this. What is the ultimate goal of life for everybody? The ultimate goal of life, I think, is to not sin. If God, the author of life, if we are separated from Him when we sin, it stands to reason that the ultimate goal would not to be separate from Him. Amen? And here's what we said. It, to not sin is the same thing as seeing God as supremely value, valuable, infinitely worthy, and therefore enjoying Him above all else forever. The two are the same thing. If you enjoy God and you see Him as supremely valuable, you know how not to sin. If you know how not to sin, then you see God as supremely valuable and infinitely infinitely worthy. They're the same thing. And I think that's Jesus' main point when He comes to talk about greed. Here's the thing I understand about Christians, and you understand this too. It's my tendency to... When we talk about money, this is kind of the attitude that we have. My money and what I do with it is my business. And see, that's why we've got to talk about it if we want to strive for the ultimate goal of life to see God as supremely valuable. Right? My money and what I do with it is my business. But see, we don't always say it that way because that sounds a little bit too carnal. This is the way Christians say it. My money and what I do with it is between me and God. <laughs> right? And, and here, here's what I think we understand about that, and I'm guilty of this too. For many, in many cases, the only time that we sincerely and intentionally and consistently pray about money is when we lack it. Oh, God, if you will just. Man, we get serious about money and praying about money when we lack it. But stop and think. When was the last time you went into serious prayer because you had an abundance? When is the last time you stopped and said, God, I've got more than I need. What would you have me do with it? When's the last time you prayed before you bought a luxury or before you planned a vacation? Or before you when, when you, when have you ever stopped and just said, God, am I spending too much on entertainment? Would you help me bring that into balance? I just don't find that many Christians pray about that a lot. I, I heard Francis Chan tell a story. He said when he was pastoring a church, he got really frustrated because he couldn't find any rich Christians that really thought kingdom. And so he said, he started to pray. He said, God... Would you just send our church some rich believers who will seek first the kingdom and want to honor you with their resources? And if you don't want to do it that way, just make me rich. (laughs) And you know what he said? He wrote a book, and the next year he made a million dollars. He took every last penny and put it in a trust to be used to build hospitals and help the poor, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. He can't touch it. Whoa. I mean, I'm challenged by that. You ever played the if I win the lottery game in your head? <laughs> I could really use some water if somebody grabbed me some. 
If I, if I win the lottery in my head, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to give, but then I'm going to, and I'm going to, and I'm going to, thank you, and I'm going to. When is the last time you prayed about your abundance? It's a serious question. And here's why. Money can either be helpful or hazardous to us. They can either be helpful or it can be hazardous to us. Money is helpful when we see it as a tool to make God's worth known. It's hazardous to us when we begin to buy into the lie that my life consists in how much I have. Money is money money can cause the greatest conflicts ever. Disputes and pain and hurt. Just stop and think about maybe you've experienced this in your family or you know of families that have come into just severe conflict over inheritance. How many marriages end over money? People kill over money. Countries go to war over money, ultimately. And James spoke to this in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. I want to talk to you about the curse of greed. I want to talk to you because we live in a part of the world where we're sort of trained to think of our stuff as our stuff. We're trained to think, get all I can, do all I can to get all I can. And the more I have, the better off I am and the happier I will be. Stay with me to the end because you're going to find out this is not about quantity. This is not even about should I save or not, how much should I give. This is really about not buying into the lie that my life consists in what I have. There's a movie called The Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. I'm sure many of you have seen it. In this movie, there's a character named Elizabeth Swan, and as a little girl, she's on a boat with her father, who is a governor, and they are headed to Port Royal, Jamaica, of all places. And um, they, on the way, they find this little boy floating in the water at a shipwreck. And so they bring the little boy aboard, and uh, Emma, as a little girl, is asked to take care of him, and she finds around his neck a gold pirate medallion. She takes it off of him, and she hides it because she's afraid that if her father and the others on the ship find out that he is a pirate, that they're going to kill him. So she hides it, and she keeps it for eight years. Eight years later, she's at a ceremony, and at this time she's wearing a corset, and the corset is too tight. She can't breathe. She faints, falls into the water, and when she falls into the water, the medallion is activated. And once it's activated, the Black Pearl pirate ship, under the direction of Captain... Barbosa shows up to Port Royal looking for this medallion. And here's what happens. Check this out. You know, when I watch that, this is what I think about. What is it about money that can cause mild-mannered people to act like savages? I mean, wouldn't you say that all that violence and destruction and these pirates coming in, 
That's the kind of havoc that money can wreak in a marriage. That's the kind of havoc that money can wreak in a family, in a business, where business partners end up in lawsuits over money. People fight over inheritance. That's the kind of havoc that money can wreak. And you know what? Here's the deal. This is what money is. A piece of paper. Right? It's a piece of paper. Or it's plastic. It's my debit card. Or it's metal. Pieces of paper, plastic or metal, that we exchange for what we value. That's all it is. We exchange it for what we value. We value life and taste, so we exchange it for food. We value education, so we exchange it for books and tuition. We value luxury or rest and relaxation, so we exchange it for a vacation. We value all sorts of things. We value entertainment, so we exchange it for Netflix and ball games and concerts, right? What makes money powerful is that in our culture, we're able to exchange it for what we value. And that's what's going on in this story. Pirates acting like savages over gold. We'll find out more in just a minute. Let's go back to our text, verse 13 of Luke 12. Some people come to Jesus and and someone in the crowd, verse 13, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? It's a fascinating response from Jesus. Because I'm reading this and I'm sort of thinking like some of the situations I've been in as a pastor. I almost would expect Jesus to go, okay, let me see the will. Let's see if we can sort this out. But he doesn't want to get in the details. It's not that he doesn't have something to say. He does have something to say. I'm not sure these people are ready to hear it. I'm not sure that we're ready to hear it. I'm not sure that I'm ready to hear it. But he does have something to say, but he's not going to get drawn into the details of this dispute. Why? Because that's not the biggest issue here. There's a deeper issue here, something deeper. Money is value. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke 12, 34, which says what? It says the movement of our money says something about the movement of our heart. Amen? Where your money goes is where your heart goes. Oftentimes. You exchange money for what you value and what you treasure. So when I say that money can be hazardous or helpful, to the degree that money helps us show our value in God, it's helpful. But to the degree that it shows we value things more than God, it's hazardous. And that's why Jesus says this in verse 15. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things. Here's the lie that money tells us. If you can have me, you can have life. Stop and think about how many times you and I have made these kinds of statements. When we see a house, when we see a car, when we see the latest technology, when we see where others go on vacation, right? When we see certain forms of entertainment, this is what kind of comes up in us, either consciously or subconsciously. 
If I can have that, then I will live. When the latest iPhone comes up, why do people stand in line for hours through the night to get the latest technology? Because if I can have that, I can have life. That's the lie money tells us. It's the lie that stuff tells us. And oh, the links we go to. Come on, are you with me? Oh, the links we go to. We go into debt. We put relationships at risk. We work overtime. Not that working overtime is bad in and of itself. But you, can, you and I can easily get consumed with having. Our culture is driven by having. And we get so cluttered that God struggles to occupy 2% of our attention because we got so much other stuff to attend to. Sometimes when I go to Jamaica, I envy their simplicity. In fact, I had a conversation with the pa- Pastor Omar at the church that we work with in Jamaica. And we were just talking about church. That's all we were talking about. Talking about how we do church, methods, tools that we use, different things like that. And he said to me, he said, you know, sometimes I get frustrated because in Jamaica, we don't, our church doesn't have the revenue to be able to buy some of the tools that you have at your church in America. And you know what I told him? I said, Omar, sometimes those tools become more of a hindrance and a headache than they are a help. Just just love Jesus. Worship Jesus. Make disciples. Use whatever you have. Let God take your five loaves and two fish and multiply it. We get focused on stuff even in the church. If I can just have that, then I'll be happy. The latest fashion. You know, do do you ever feel worried like that your clothes are out of style? Man, I gotta go shopping. Because Lord knows, I don't want to be caught dead in stuff that's out of style. That would be the end of the world. I can talk about that because style is like the least of my worries, as you can probably tell. So what's the big deal with this medallion? Why why are these pirates just going nuts over this medallion? Kind of like we do over stuff sometimes. In this next clip, Captain Bar- Emma goes to see Captain Barbosa on the Black Pearl, and he explains to her why this gold medallion is such a big deal. And I want you to pay close attention because there's a scripture that I think ties this right in together. So check this out. So when I watch that, I can't help but think that we experience a similar curse. Not, not in the fantastical sense like is portrayed in that movie, but in a real sense. The sense that Paul talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Look, look at this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money, not money itself, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is though this craving that some, it's through this craving that some, listen to this, have wandered away from the faith. What does it mean to wander away from the faith? Can I tell you something? 
it doesn't just mean that someone comes to the place where they say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. You know what it means to wander away from the faith? It means that you come to the place where God is not your treasure. Jesus, you don't see Him as supremely valuable. He's a lesser value to other things. We cannot declare Jesus is Lord of all, that from you, through you, and to you are all things, to you be the glory. We cannot declare His victory as our victory and see Him as number 7, 8, 9, or 10 on the list of things in our life that are most valuable. And can I tell you something? It's really easy to say Jesus is Lord in my life and I see Him as valuable, more valuable than everything and anything else. But can I tell you something? And I know I'm sounding old school. If your checkbook doesn't line up with that, I heard somebody say one time, you can tell what somebody values by looking at two things, their calendar and wherever they keep track of their money. Because where that, where my time goes and my money goes is to what I see to be most valuable. And Paul says, many have wandered away from the faith, craving riches. And listen to this, and have pierced themselves with many pains. Our hearts are so vulnerable to this, aren't they? It's so easy for me to get caught up in the thinking that my life is found in having more or in having the latest and greatest. But you and I both know the latest and greatest never delivers on the benefits it promises, does it? But yet we get caught up in the cycle. I think this is where Jesus is going. And so he tells a parable. Let's read it. Verse 16 of Luke 12. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This guy, don't get offended at me, is a damned fool. That's literally what Jesus is saying. I'm not just trying to be theatrical. That's literally what Jesus is saying in this parable. He's cursed himself. Not because... He had an abundant harvest. Working hard and experiencing prosperity is not wrong. You ought to amen right there. Right? It's not wrong. The problem, listen, is not even that he built larger barns and stored. I, you might disagree with me. I don't think that's the problem. It's not wrong to save and prepare for the future. It's not wrong to make and have an abundance and try to be a good steward of it. That's not the problem. The problem is his heart was in those barns. The problem is he, how he saw his abundance and how he thought about it. Here's how he thought about it, verse 19. 
And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The use of his resources says this. His treasure is in relaxing, in eating, and drinking, and having fun. That's his treasure. That's his God. Paul called this kind of covetousness idolatry in Colossians 3. This is an idol for him. I want to sit back and relax and enjoy this for myself. That's his problem is how he sees it because how he sees his treasure, how he uses his treasure, says so much about the value he places on God. That's where his satisfaction is. He wants to eat, drink, be merry, relax, and have fun. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, what in the world is wrong with that? Nothing. If there's no resurrection. If there's no infinitely valuable God. That's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If the dead are not raised... Let's eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. If the dead aren't raised. But the dead are raised. Christ went through the grave and out the other side. He's Lord of the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. There is an infinitely valuable God who has made His glory and power and beauty known to us. And so no, the point of life, the ultimate goal of life is not to stockpile our resources so we can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's not the point of life. And you know what? That's what the American dream tells us. You know what? What I'm saying right now, and what the, not what I'm saying, what the Scripture is saying is depressing. If God is not that valuable. Because God doesn't come to you and say. Look. Don't strive to be. You know marry and relax. And eat and drink and have fun. At the expense. Of no treasure. He offers you himself. In its place. And that has huge, has a huge impact on us because all of a sudden we realize these things that always leave me hanging, let's be honest, we go to all these great lengths to have and have and have and have more. And what are we left with? This empty insatiableness for more. You ever just go through your house and have a clean out day and look at all the stuff you got? Have you ever moved? And you start to move and unpack, and, and I mean not unpack, but pack and, and unload the cupboards and the closets and the attic. You're like, where did all of this come from? We're like skeletons. We can't even take in the drink that we think is going to satisfy us that we're working so hard for. Right? This man's a fool. A fool that loses his soul. Jesus said in Mark 8.36, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So what's the antidote for this? I think it's in verse 21. I think it's Jesus' main point. Luke chapter 12, verse 21. This man's a fool. Jesus says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not... 
rich toward God. Let's say that together. Rich toward God. Let's say it again. Rich toward God. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean that you give a lot. You know what it means? It means that you see God as so valuable and as such a great treasure that all of your earthly treasures become a resource to put His worth on display. And that doesn't just involve giving. That involves how you spend, too. You can spend, and I can spend in such a way that brings God glory, that makes His worth known. We can also give and make His worth known, but it's not just about giving. It's not just about saving. It's how we think about it, and it's how we use those resources that God has blessed us with. Whether you feel like you've got a lot or a little, being rich toward God is making His worth known. That's what Paul, I think this is what Paul was talking about in Philippians 3 verse 8 when he said this. He said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of what? Because that's more spiritual to do that. Because I look more spiritual when I do that. Because I'll be more holy when I do that. No, it's because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. I don't know about you, but when my children were born, I used to play golf a lot. When Mary and I were married and we didn't have any kids, and I worked for a college that had a deal where I could play golf for free, I mean, I got off work at 4 o'clock, and it was play till dark. Loved it. I still love to play. I used to love, I, I love to cycle, get on a bike and just ride for hours. There's lots of things I love to do. I still love to do those things, and I do them sometimes. But when my children were born, there was a surpassing worth to all those things. I'd rather be with them. I'd rather maximize every moment I have with them because they're growing up so fast. One day I'm going to be watching them in a cap and gown or in a wedding gown and a tuxedo and they're going to be moving on and doing their thing and their life. It's going to happen like that and there are people in this audience nodding because you know. Paul says, I count all things as loss, not just because I'm trying to look more spiritual, it's because I've found God. Knowing Him is of surpassing worth. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We talked about this last week. Where do we see God's beauty, value, and worth? Right here. Not there. This is where we see it. In the pages of Scripture, God has made himself known. And when we see his beauty and value and worth here, When we devour this, when we depend on the Spirit to see Him, Paul says, beholding Him, we are transformed from glory to glory. So it's literally when we see Him, we're transformed. All of a sudden, stuff, we realize stuff is not where my life comes from. He is. That's how we count all things as loss, for the sake of knowing Christ our Lord. When we behold Him and He becomes our treasure, Earthly treasures become nothing more than a tool to show how much we value God. This rich fool, instead of saying, I'm going to sit back and be merry, eat, drink, and relax, 
He could have prayed, God, this is all yours. Show me how to make your worth known through what you've blessed me with. He could have prayed that. So let me give you some practical steps, okay? Just some practical things to take away. How to guard. That's what Jesus says. Guard yourself against covetousness. That is a command, right? Amen? It's a command. It's an instruction from Jesus. Guard yourself against the temptation to pursue things because you think your life is in things. Guard yourself against it. Don't fall into the trap. Don't believe the lie that money tells you. Guard yourself. It's not just about giving, but it does have huge implications for giving. But Jesus' main point is guard yourself. So how do we do that? Let me give you just two things, okay? Two things that come on the heels of devouring this in order to do what Paul said, count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Once we see him, once we know his worth, and we see that, then we are positioned to guard ourselves. How? Here's a couple of things. Number one, simplify. Simplify your life. Simplify your life. There's so much we could talk about here, and I'm almost out of time. I'm going to recommend a book to you. Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. There's a whole chapter in there on simplicity. So much good stuff in there. I don't have time to get into all of it. Let me just mention a couple things to you about simplifying that I took from this book. Number one, when you spend on yourself, think useful, not status. When you spend on yourself, think useful, not status status, okay? Luxuries in and of themselves are not wrong, but when we start to think about status, I think that's a key indication that our heart is starting to wander away from treasuring God and into treasuring stuff. How does this make me look? If I get this, yeah, then people going to know. They're going to know about my barns, right? Don't think status. Think useful. Okay? Here's another thing. Avoid things that are becoming an addiction to you. And you know what? If you stop and think, you don't have to think really hard to identify things that are becoming an addiction. Clothes, cars, entertainment, media, technology, right? If that stuff's becoming an addiction to you, what did Jesus say? If your right eye causes you to sin, listen, I know... There's a danger here with this stuff, and that is, the, let me just say this real quickly. It's the danger of getting legalistic with this. This is not about legalism. In fact, legalism can be just as hazardous as thinking your life consists in the abundance of things. And Paul talked about that in Colossians 2. He said people have you know, promoted extreme discipline, and he said those things are in, are in no way effective in stopping the adult indulgence of the flesh. Okay? It's risky to talk about it because of that, but I think we've got to take the risk is that if stuff's becoming an addiction to us, then it's beginning to occupy that space that only God's meant to occupy. Amen? So watch for that. Here's the other thing. 
I've already mentioned it. Avoid cultural propaganda. We, I'll tell you one thing we are addicted to in our culture. We are addicted to the latest and greatest. If it's new, it must be the best. Am I right or am I right? If it's the latest, we got to have it. Because it's going to do this. It's going to provide this. It's going to make my life more efficient. It's going to this. It's going to that. And you know what? We are, as Americans, wasting so much resource on the latest and greatest that never delivers on the benefits it promises. My phone's in my office, but I can tell you it's delivered on about 20% of what it promises, if that. Right? I'll amen myself. Avoid things that distract you from seeking first the kingdom of God. Avoid things that distract you from seeking first the kingdom of God. One of the, one of the most tragic things is when we have abundance. But, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why you find a lot of Christians going through one crisis after another. I'm not saying it's all the time. Don't hear, hear me this. I'm not saying it's all the time. But the Bible says God's a jealous God. Does it say that? And you know what? I think sometimes God will take us through crisis to just bring us back to dependence. Because the first thing that happens when we're in abundance is we get self-sufficient. And that is poison to our souls. To lose our dependence on God and our treasuring of Him because we've built bigger barns and I've got all this stuff. Now I can have that. Now I can buy that. Now I can have that country club membership. Or I can have that car. I can buy that vacation home. Now I can have all of that. And it starts to cause us to wander away from our dependence on God. And that's a tragedy. Right? It's the worst thing that can happen to a believer is that we allow things into our life. It's not, I'm not saying that those things are bad in and of themselves. But I, wouldn't you agree that it would behoove us to just stop and take stock of what might be buoying our self-sufficiency instead of our God dependency. Right? Which leads me to the second suggestion. Simplify as much as you can. Okay? Be prayerful about that. And that's really the second thing is be prayerful about your abundance. Whatever level of abundance you have right now, don't, don't, don't get into this comparison thing of how much they have versus how much I have. Let's, let's, let's just be done with that. Paul says we're not wise when we do that, right? Let's just be done with that stuff. But whatever level of abundance you have, pray about it. Let God into your abundance. He's not just interested in you when you lack. He's interested in you when you abound. He wants to make himself known through you and his worth and value known through you by the way you steward your abundance, right? And let's let's just acknowledge, Paul said it, 1 Timothy, if we only think of our abundance as an opportunity to eat, drink, and be merry, we're going to be like these cursed pirates. We're never going to have enough. It's never going to satisfy 
And we might even find ourselves somewhere down the road having to backtrack and undo damage that we've done in our world, in our family, in our marriage, and in our relationships because we got so caught up in stuff, just like they're having to track down every medallion they spent in order to break the curse. Right? Pray about your abundance. God, how might you want to make your worth and value known through what you've blessed me with. Whatever level it is. And you know what? If you start to simplify, you might actually find some margin that you didn't know you could have. If you start to simplify and stop thinking that if it comes out, i got to have it, or if I can, I should. You know what? That's a really bad thing. If I think I can, then I should. If there's room on the credit card, then I probably should do it. Eh, wrong. Right? If you start to simplify, you might actually find some margin and a space to pray and let God in so that He can put on display His worth and value through you by how you use the abundance He's blessed you with. Okay? Are we going to be rich toward God? It's really the question, isn't it? Are we going to be rich toward God? The only way to avoid the curse of greed, would you agree that this is a big problem in our culture? This is a big problem, and we're not exempt from it. But I hear from Jesus' words a plea. Don't get trapped by that. Don't get in a dispute over an inheritance. You're better off to let it go. You're better off to be wronged. You're better off to just take an injustice on the chin than you are to get trapped by covetousness. That's what Jesus is saying. Why? Paul would say, the surpassing worth of Him? Why would I get caught up in that? It's not worth it. Let's be rich toward God. Pray with me. Father,